0: Before we get to today's show, just a quick reminder that you can get the most comprehensive digest of China-Africa news delivered daily to your email inbox. Try it out at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe.
2: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina, I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by CAPS Managing Editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Cobus today we're going to be talking about the economy and sustainability and the environment in Ghana as it relates to the Chinese. The situation in Ghana is very concerning right now in terms of the economy. Let me just run you through a few of the statistics in case you have not been following what's been going on over there. And again, it is quite alarming. The inflation rate in Africa's biggest gold-producing country soared to a 12-year high to 19.4% last month. It is still very high. The sedi, which is the currency, is one of the world's worst performing currencies against the dollar this year. Total public debt, COBUS, now stands at $47 billion, which is about 77% of the country's GDP. And that's well above what the IMF likes it in that 50 to 60% range. And then here, most concerningly, more than half of what the government takes in in revenue is now being used to service that debt. So that is money that is not going to pay for social services or sustainability or all the other things that economies like Ghana's need to do to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, interestingly enough, we wrote last week about the relationship with the Chinese and debt. Ghana is among the top 10 recipients of Chinese loans in Africa, and it's oftentimes cited in these lists of where should we be most concerned about Chinese debt. But this is one of those cases where worries about Chinese debt sustainability is actually not an issue. In all, Ghanaians owe about 3.5 billion to Chinese creditors and that's mostly to the China Exim Bank, which is about 8% of the total. So very similar, Cobus, to what we've been seeing in other African countries like Nigeria, and Kenya, where the perceptions of Chinese debt are actually much larger than the realities, which are oftentimes in the low single digits. So not, uh, not a big concern, but this is just one of a number of worrisome economic situations in Africa. But unlike past crises, Cobus, we're not hearing anywhere near as much about the Chinese role.
1: Yes, this is this is very interesting, um, and it's particularly interesting in relation to the, the kind of wider anxieties that there is about Chinese debt um, in, in, on the continent. You know what's what's I think is going to be very interesting on, in how this shakes out um, is you know kind of ongoing ongoing you know dis- discussions about large scale Chinese projects, some of which have been very controversial. And whether they might get reassessed, you know, kind of as 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 the this eco- economic problem gets gets played out.
2: Well, let's look at the intersection now between the economy and sustainability and environment, and there are a lot of concerns to discuss in Ghana everything from mining to forestry to fishing and to the effects that uh, extractive industries are having on the environment and for that we're thrilled to have on the program for the first time Dr. Francis Xavier Tuoku is one of Ghana's foremost scholars in the fields of environmental and energy policy clean energy technologies and sustainability He's also a research fellow at the Afro-Sino Center of International Relations in Accra and an adjunct professor at Antioch University in New Hampshire in the beautiful northeastern United States. Francis, you are a very busy man. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today from beautiful Keene, New Hampshire, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Eric and Cobus,
0: it's it's a privilege to, to be part of your program.
2: It's wonderful to have you on the program, and it's a very timely discussion to have, given the economic uncertainties that are now confronting Ghana today. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the linkages between the economy and some of the sustainability issues that you have been following for many, many years. Talk to us a little bit about, again, where we are today in terms of the weakness of the economy and the country's commitment to pursuing governance on mining, fishing, forestry and some of these other issues?
0: Ghana has been producing gold for several centuries um, and other minerals, you know. So the mineral wealth of Ghana is never in doubt because the country is in doubt with gold, bauxite, manganese, diamonds and oil and gas resources. And it will interest you to know that Ghana was formerly called the Gold Coast, But when the Europeans arrived in Ghana in the 15th century, they saw gold everywhere. So they named the country uh, Gold Coast. And it was only around 1957 when Ghana became the first country in sub-Saharan Africa to gain independence that our forefathers at the time changed the name from Gold Coast to Ghana to befit its status as an independent uh, nation. And so Ghana has mined gold for several centuries, like I pointed out. But what remains doubtful is whether these resources have been transformed to improve the standard of living of the people. And on top of that, there's pervasive degradation of the environment, such as soil contaminations, air and water pollution, among others, in many mining communities. Meanwhile, the environmental policies that have been introduced to protect the environment and the citizens are not effectively implemented. And so sustainable sustainability or sustainable development has been, you know, recognized as a way of dealing with some of these challenges, including the economic challenges you pointed out. And so, but there is lack of understanding of sustainability or sustainable development in the context of the mining sector in Ghana. The concept is understood differently by different mining players. You agree with me that sustainability or sustainable development generally it's a celebrity concept. And so because of that, various mining corporations, institutions have pursued sustainability or sustainable development, you know, the way they understand it. And so my work, you know, have come to the conclusion that to be able to integrate sustainability into economic development, we have to have a common understanding, a common framework, particularly within the extractive industry we should have a common understanding of sustainability or what we mean by sustainable, sustainable development. And so we need to have a common framework to guide all mining operations. All the extractive industries should have a common framework. That way, we'll be able to have an effective implementation of sustainability initiatives or sustainability projects or programs. Until we do that, we will not achieve sustainability or sustainable developments within the extractive industry
1: i i'm, I'm in, in a similar country as as, as ghana south africa in, in the sense that it's also a, a you know a country with with a very long history of mining and one where mining the history of mining and uh, mineral wealth as was very closely linked to it's to the colonization of the country and therefore you know in, in in large parts you know what we what one sees in many countries that that are like that is local communities playing a, a, a very low value role, you know, kind of as, as part of like, you know, kind of like being only labor, for example, or, or being completely excluded from from land that they used to think of as, as their own, because of mining operations there. Um, so, you know, kind of looking at, at that, at that kind of reality that that I think is true in, in many African countries, how do you see that kind of sustainability framework being shaped? Are you looking at at this happening at a national level? Should it happen at a regional level or even a continental level? And who should the kind of main players be in articulating that kind of set of shared sustainability principles?
0: Yes, I agree with you. So for me, it should happen both at the national level and sub-national level. Yes, it is true that communities are usually neglected in uh, all these theoretical and practical engagement or debates on sustainability. So let me put this in, uh, you know, let me mention this to put the issues in proper context. The Minerals and Mining Act of 2006. I'm talking about Ghana's Minerals and Mineral Act of 2006, Act 703 as amended in 2010 and 2015, which is the mother of all mining laws in Ghana, states that wherever a mineral is discovered, it belongs to the people of, uh, it, sorry, it belongs to the President of Ghana. And the president of Ghana holds that in trust for the people of Ghana. And so if a mineral is discovered on your piece of land, that land no longer belongs to you. But the same law says that the original landowner should be compensated. But in most cases, little or no compensation is given to the original landowner. And so if you go to Ghana, the Wasa Mining enclave, it has the highest concentration of mining activities anywhere in Africa. And about 70% of lands in those communities have been taken from the people and given to large-scale multinational corporations as concessions with little or no compensation uh, going to the landowners. And so uh, the landowners or the communities are usually neglected in ownership of these minerals. And so because of that, it has led to conflict, especially between corporations or mining corporations and communities, because mining corporations claim ownership or mineral ownership or mineral rights to the ownership of those lands. Whereas the landowners claim bad rights to the ownership of the same lands. And so there's always a conflict between mining corporations and the landowners. And so, to ensure that there's sustainability, to ensure that there are win win outcomes between corporations and communities, there should be that stakeholder engagement, or especially from the community perspective, they should be involved in the decision making process they should be part of the process of decision making so that they, are, they they will claim ownership of all these policies you know that have been developed to guide mining operations once they claim ownership of these policies they will ensure that they are effectively implemented but if they if they are not part of the decision making process and they don't claim ownership of these policies then we'll have a problem there but it's
2: not just only about the land owners there's also a question about The public lands and when community groups speak up about their concerns about the public lands, they're oftentimes brushed aside. And let's bring the Chinese into this conversation now, because that was the case in the Atiwa National Forest Reserve for the two billion dollar bauxite for infrastructure deal that was mining bauxite in that that reserve, which local communities said that it jeopardizes the water supply for potentially thousands, even millions of people. When we see the discussion about the fisheries, how the Chinese are actively involved in illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing, the fisheries minister doesn't take action, as she should. In fact, when there are fines that are levied, the Chinese don't pay, and they continue to let the Chinese trawlers go. And then there was the... Operation Halt operations. There were two operations that took place last year, and I'd like to play a little bit of sound because there, there's there's a point here that I'd like you to respond to. Now, for those of you not familiar with Operation Halt, it was a joint task force that swept into the western Ghanaian region in a bid to stop illegal mining, specifically along rivers. The first Operation Halt took place in September and the second Operation Halt took place in June. So that was September of the previous year and then the following June. But as you're going to hear from this report from Joy FM, where they talked about the achievements of Operation Halt 2, this is the second one, they're not that big. And then you'll hear from Defense Minister Dominic Nitiwul, who acknowledged the operation's difficulties.
0: We're still staying on illegal mining. Minister for Defense Dominic Nitiwul has been announcing that 592 items, including 24 excavators, 341 chamfan machines as well as 123 water pumping machines were seized and destroyed in the second phase of Operation HALT. A little over 400 personnel drawn from the armed forces were deployed to the areas around the river and Cobra in the western region to stop illegal miners from continuing to pollute the water. Dominic Nita will also spoke at the news conference to give an update on the military's operations there. It was observed that some illegal miners had moved their mining equipment, particularly excavators, to just nearby communities. So you are passing and you can see huge excavators standing in communities. But they've moved them out of the 100-meter zone. But you can see that this, this is a little a community. And then you have 10, 20 excavators standing there. You know that they, they, they were using to do illegal things. But because it's not within the 100 meters, you cannot destroy them. So the armed forces will pass and move on. We need to take a decision about some of these things as a
2: government and as a people. As a government and as a people, these are things that have to be decided. And I'd like to get your take on that because this speaks to the governance question, corruption. And in the whole Operation Halt going against the Galamse, which is the illegal miners, there was an expectation that there was going to be larger numbers of Chinese who were arrested. And only a handful were arrested, in part because they were tipped off and they moved their equipment and they fled. Can you speak to us a little bit about some of the issues that Defense Minister Dominic Nidawul raised?
0: Yeah, first of all, the law says that So in Ghana we have two main uh, forms of mining, the small-scale mining and large scale mining. The small-scale mining is divided, is further divided into two legal small-scale mining and illegal small-scale mining so the illegal aspect of small-scale mining is what is called the galamsee and that is what the minister uh, uh, talked about and first of all the small scale mining law says that only Ghanaians, only ghanaian nationals can register can register and operate within the small scale mining sector so what it means is that other nationals are not supposed to operate in that space. But they do. But we know they do,
2: right? I mean, they've been operating that space for
0: decades now. Exactly. So, so that's, that's what I'm coming to. Yes, so that's true. They do. In fact, bringing out the Chinese question, you know, between 2008 and 2012, there were about 50,000 Chinese operating within the small-scale mining sector. So which means mean that about 50,000 Chinese were operating illegally between 20, 2008 and in 2012, I don't have current uh, figures, but it is illegal for other nationals to operate in the sector, but they've been doing so, and that that is a problem. And our river bodies have been destroyed, our environment has been destroyed, and government, in an attempt to sanitize the sector, has decided to use um, the military, uh, including what you mentioned, the uh, Operation uh, Halt, Operation Vanguard, among others. But I think that the government doesn't fully understand the the nuances within the sector. In fact, small-scale mining contributes about one-third of all Ghana's gold. One-third of Ghana's gold comes from the small-scale mining sector, which means that the sector has the potential to contribute to economic development. All the government needs to do is to make sure that the laws work, is to make sure that the registration process involved for one to register and become a small-scale miner is not cumbersome. As it stands now, the process is very cumbersome and it's not decentralized. And because it's not decentralized and very cumbersome, most miners have decided that they are going to operate illegally. So for instance, if you are in one part of the, uh, the country and you want to register a small scale mining business, you have to travel to Accra, which is the national capital, to register. And you know it's, it's it's a problem. So most people think that once those lands are you know they are uh, uh, you know they claim birthright right to those lands, why do I have to register? So they operate illegally, and that is one of the reasons responsible for the proliferation of small scale miners in Ghana. And the Chinese, with the aid of some chiefs, I must say some chiefs, not all chiefs, some chiefs are operating in the sector. Other nationals as well. They are operating in that sector. Meanwhile, the sector is reserved for only Ghanaians. And so, until the government implement the law and ensure that the registration process is decentralized and very easy for people to register, we'll continue to have you know, people operating in, in that sector illegally because they have to survive it's a survival issue
1: so we've been following you know obviously china africa issues for for a long time for for more than 10 years and the galamse the chinese involvement in galamse in ghana is something that i remember from some of the earliest china africa stuff i read like many years ago and it's it hasn't changed it's still it still remains it's not only that that they remain involved in the sector but it also the galamse in you know the chinese involvement in galamse in ghana remains incredibly controversial in ghana to the extent that you know kind of like i've seen hundreds and hundreds of news articles about it for example like like dozens and dozens of 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 scholarly accounts of it so what are some of the some of the tactics that the chinese follow to remain so active in the sector even though they're so hated by everyone in ghana like you know kind of how is how is it possible for them to keep surviving in that field when their very survival there and their presence there is so incredibly controversial for, for over such a long time
0: First of all, they have the technology. They have the technology to extract them. You know, um, Gallimese miners use rudimentary tools. And the Chinese are able to provide them, uh, miners, with uh, bulldozers, with uh, sophisticated equipment to extract the minerals from the ground. And so that is one way. Once there is an easier way of extracting minerals from the ground, then the people will buy into that and then um, use those equipment to extract gold and give the Chinese a percentage of the minerals they extract from the ground. So that's one of the ways that, I mean, um, that is making the Chinese successful in this space. Also, the Chinese come in with a lot of money, apart from the equipment I mentioned or technology I mentioned, they come in with a lot of money, which they sometimes, you mentioned earlier on corruption, so which they sometimes use to bribe local chiefs, some local chiefs, and then opinion leaders, to uh, give them access to lands. And once you have access to lands, then you can do whatever you I mean, you want to do with the lands. And so they're able to bribe their way to have access to lands. And to some extent that they're they able to bribe their way, even with some government officials, some government officials you know, are able to protect these Chinese and give them access to lands, give them access to uh, some concessions of even light scale multinational corporations and so those are some of the ways by which Chinese or the tactics they use to succeed. And if they are arrested, they know that there are some officials who make sure they go scot-free. So those are some of the measures, you know, or tactics the Chinese employ.
2: So with that in mind, we have not seen a commensurate improvement in governance over the past 10 years in terms of cracking down on Glamse and specifically Chinese contributions to to what's going on in that space. And if that's, in fact, what's happening is there is a a, a collusion between Chinese mining interests, informal, small-scale Chinese mining interests, and local authorities, local tribe leaders and whatnot, and chieftains, then what's the hope that this is going to get any better anytime soon?
0: For me, uh, my experience on the ground tells me that there's there's no hope that this will ever come to an end until, like I said earlier, until we make sure that the laws work. And to make the laws work... We have to support small-scale miners who are indigenous Ghanaians with capital, with equipment, and with ready market to buy the minerals. If we don't do that, they will continue to get support from the Chinese. And who is going to do that? Because the government right
2: now that's tasked to enforce the laws is not enforcing the laws. So then who would actually do
0: that? There should be stakeholder engagements among government officials, the locals, local chief, and that includes local chiefs, the miners and mining regulators. So, for instance, the Minerals Commission, which is the body responsible for all mining operations in Ghana, including small-scale mining, can, you know, decentralize their operations such that there's a minerals, uh, sorry, there's a, um, a Minerals Commission in each district, so that if anyone is interested in registering a small-scale mining company. They can easily walk to the district office and register their operations. Instead of traveling from all parts of the country to the national capital, Accra to register their operations. Until we do that, then the sector will continue to grow. And the Chinese will continue to influence the sector with money and with technology. So stakeholder engagement is the way to go
1: you've done so much work on, on mining and sustainability, and I'd like us to kind of zoom out in the conversation slightly. Around the time when, when, when the, the, um, the Ghanaian bauxite for infrastructure deal, be, you know, became news um, and, and with it, as Eric referred to, these community concerns about, about large-scale water pollution that, will, that would affect you know, thousands and thousands of people and very large-scale possible environmental destruction of, of, of really important forest areas. I was wondering what your thoughts are about how global South countries can, can can deal with this issue. Because of course this isn't only in Ghana, it's isn't only in Africa, it's all over the world. The global South countries face a situation where they have to survive economically, and they do so by selling minerals and mineral and, and extractive industries are extremely environmentally damaging. Um, and so, you you know, kind of in, for, for short-term survival, one then ends up giving up these kind of long-term assets. You know, if you think about a forest as, as a kind of a set of assets that has not only environmental benefits, but potential many, many other potential benefits, including things like, you know, kind of pharmaceuticals that haven't been developed yet, for example. So, you know, kind of how, like what kind of tools are there for global South governments like Ghana's to hold on to these natural assets, you know, um, in, in, a, in a kind of a global economy that only values things like bauxite? Um, you know, like, you know, this I realize this is a very broad question, but like, you know, kind of what, what is your thinking about possible ways forward for countries like Ghana to try and preserve these assets?
0: Yeah, so the way forward to start with is diversification of our economy or the economy of the global south. You know, most governments in the global south have developmental challenges and they need resources, they need revenue to address some of these developmental challenges. And the easiest way for them is to uh, give concessions to uh, multinational corporations to you know, extract these resources like gold, bauxite, so that they can get taxes, royalties, or revenues generally from uh, these corporations to carry out their developmental uh, programs and activities. But until we diversify our economies, we'll continue to you know, rely on, And con- if we don't diversify our economies and continue to rely on uh, these natural resources, then we'll continue to face um, environmental challenges and many other challenges as well. Um, I think we need to start thinking also about adding value to uh, the goods that we produce or the, for instance, agriculture p- uh, produce. We need to add value to, to 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 the produce because we, in most cases, uh, we export these produce without adding any value. And the goods come back to us in the form of manufactured goods at very high prices. So for instance, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire alone produce over 80% of the world's cocoa. But how many Ghanaians, you know, if you go to Ghanaian homes, how many of them uh, have chocolate to, um, you know, on a daily basis? Just a few. And so we have to diversify, uh, diversify our economies and you know, add value to the uh, agricultural produce add manufacturing to, you know, to uh, economic development and not rely so much on our mineral wealth. If we rely so much on our mineral wealth, then we'll continue to face some of these challenges. So I guess my
2: question is, I live in a country here in Vietnam that's also a cocoa producer. About 10 years ago when I first moved here, there was no Vietnamese chocolate brand. But now there are a number of chocolate brands. And you can go into Bougie stores all throughout the United States and Europe now, and you can buy Vietnamese chocolate. Uh, Maru is one of them. It's an excellent one. And if you go into the Mekong Delta here in southern Vietnam, uh, there are numbers of cocoa farms that are actually producing their own chocolate, branding it. They've got agents that ship it now around the world, and it's quite fashionable. So this is something that's been done in the past 10 years where they are actually capturing more of the wealth from the natural resource, not just shipping out raw cocoa beans, but they've actually done it. And I guess my question is, and again, Vietnam is a country that is, I'm not, I haven't checked the statistics between Vietnam and Ghana, but it is on par with most African countries. It's at the mid-level rank of African countries. So this is an apples-to-apples apples, uh, or cocoa-cocoa comparison here. If that's the case of what needs to be done and countries like Vietnam are starting to do it, why hasn't it happened in
0: Ghana? So there's lack of investment uh, in the sector. We need to encourage both foreign direct investment and local investment within the sector so that people will buy the raw materials, will, will establish manufacturing companies in Ghana and convert the uh, uh, cocoa uh, beans into chocolate and other you know, uh, products. That way, we'll even get uh, value for our, our our resources than transporting the raw uh, cocoa beans, um, you know, uh, f- for foreign exchange. And so, we need to encourage both local investment and foreign investment within the cocoa sector. We also need to give, um, you know, encourage our farmers and support them more to continue to produce, and you know, and the value that they Uh, uh, you know the benefits that come with adding value the farmers will benefit at the same time you know so that is the way to go if not if we continue to export the raw cocoa beans will not uh, get value but why
2: can't they get investment why i mean again I, i i'm not trying to pit countries against each other but vietnam is able to do it china is now starting to produce its own chocolate For years, Cocoa has come out of Ghana. It's one of the largest producers in the world. Ghana has been very effective at attracting investments in other areas. Twitter is opening up an office there, after all. Why is it so difficult to get investment in Ghana, uh, one of Africa's most stable countries? There's a great natural resource, a great talent base there. And and this is not the most expensive operation we're talking about here. This is not like drilling for
0: oil, for example. Why why has it been so difficult? I think it it, it boils down to leadership. It's sad to say it so, but it it boils down to leadership. You know because we have governments or politicians who you know go on political campaigns saying that if. They are voted into power. They are going to move from a gotcha economy. Gotcha economy here means production-based economy to manufacturing-based. And when they come to office, they are not able to do so. And it continues over and over and over and over. And, you know, that has been our bane, you know. So until we get the right leadership, I don't think we'll move forward in that direction. So leadership is the problem.
1: It sounds like you know, like we, we've heard very similar things about about the problem of of overfishing and particularly Chinese overfishing um, off the coast of Ghana. We we interviewed um, several activists dealing with that and like talking about uh, about. You know, kind of such levels of overfishing that um that whole coastal economies are essentially collapsing. and it's all enabled by Ghanaian officials who, for example, allow um, Chinese trawlers to to be registered under under Ghanaian flags. um do, do you see any kind of backlash, political backlash coming against these governments from the you know, this kind of bad management or is it just or is it a situation where the where the population is just so, so kind of like with you know so cynical that and, and hopeless that that they don't expect anything to improve ever.
0: Yeah, so the people are really angry over some of these things, especially over fishing by Chinese trawlers. And you know, over the past, since Ghana discovered oil in commercial quantities, uh, you know, production started in 2010. You know, fishermen have complained about lack of uh, low fish cash from their fishes, especially along the western coast. Um, Central region and Western region, because, you know, uh, fishermen generally are not allowed to fish around where the oil uh, wrecks are. And, you know, the oil rigs attract the fishes. And so they've been getting low yields from um, their their fish catch. And on top of that, there are Chinese uh, fishermen who are, you know, um, operating in that area. And so the people are angry. And the government, you know, um, usually will say, oh, they will do something about it or they are doing something about it. And yet nothing is done about it. And so, some, in, in, you know, sometimes people organize demonstrations and you know, others just throw their hands in limbo and, you know, conclude that, you know, the, all politicians are the same. And that, you know, even the next government will do the same. And so some have lost hope. Some have lost hope in the system or with the system. Others still think that there's still some hope, and so what they do is they organize demonstrations to drum home their points. But until we have the right leadership, you know, we'll continue to, to be in, in in our current uh, situation. It's very grim, just because it doesn't look like, when we look at some of
2: the politicians right now on the scene in Ghana, it's, it's not very hopeful, because a lot of the politicians, even like former President John Mahema, who's coming back to power, it looks like, or trying to come back to power, is very much going to bring with him some of the old politicians who never solved any of these problems. So as uh, to your point, there is not a much hope right now on the horizon. Uh, very quickly before we go, I'd just like to get your take on some of the new financing methods that have been introduced, namely by the Chinese over the past years, in order to leverage the country's resources for the badly needed infrastructure that's needed, I mentioned at the top of the program the bauxite for infrastructure deal was about $2 billion, and it was a pioneering deal at the time. It was a couple of years ago. Now that you've had a chance to look back on this arrangement, do you think it's been successful to date? Infrastructure is coming online as part of this arrangement, but does it meet your expectations, and can this serve as a model for the future, or do you think Ghanaians should stay away
0: from this model? China imports about $100 Dollars worth of uh, base metals, including bauxite, every year. And so they're interested in our bauxite. They're interested in our gold. They're in- interested in our, our our mineral wealth. And so what they are doing is that they are bringing in infrastructure to exchange for our mineral resources. But the sad thing is that they usually come with cheap labor. You know, instead of using Ghanaian labor or African labor, they bring their own labor. And that's where I have difficulty if they don't bring their labor and use African labor, then we'll say there's hope, because African labor will be employed, people will have money, there will be money in the system, people will, uh, because people will be employed, and you know uh, people's livelihoods will be improved. But if they come to Africa, including Ghana, and they come with their own labor, then that's where I have uh, difficulty. If not, the infrastructure is good. We need infrastructure. There's infrastructure deficit across Africa, including Ghana. So what it means is that we need infrastructure. So if they bring infrastructure and take our mineral minerals, I mean um, at, at negotiated terms, which benefit both of us, that is both Africans and Chinese, that is a good deal. But if they, as part of the terms, if they bring their own labour and usually very cheap labour, you, know, you know, that's where, like I said, that's where I have difficulty. And in some cases, where they hire local Ghanaians or local Africans, there's always the concern of safety. And we have cases of where locals died working for the Chinese. And so we have to look, relook look at some of these issues critically. Do you have evidence to support the assertion that the
2: Chinese are bringing in their own labor for Ghana? Because the data that we see in countries like Angola, in Ethiopia and elsewhere is that 85 to 90 percent, 90 plus percent of the labor hired for construction is local bringing Chinese workers over from China is a very expensive proposition now. It's not as cheap as it was 15, 20 years ago. So is that, are you basing that assertion on data or is that just a broad picture? I mean, Because I, I, in Ghana, I've not heard of large importation of Chinese labor to work on construction projects.
0: Construction projects, there are Chinese in, uh, you know, in Ghana, um, in many of the Chinese uh, uh, projects. Um, if road projects... Um, building projects, you see Chinese everywhere, with very few Ghanaians, You know, so I, I, I'm 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 basing my argument on you know on a very broad perspective and what I have seen on the ground. Um, yes, so Chinese come with their um, um, their labor, and I'm also basing my argument on um, you know what is reported out there in the media. Some people say uh, the media is not friendly to the to, to Chinese, to the uh, to China or to Beijing, but I don't see that to be entirely the case. As you know, um, from my own experience, in few countries I've visited in Africa, point to the fact that they come with their labour.
1: Looking forward, um, how do you see the Ghana-China relationship going forward? I mean, so so many aspects of the relationship are. The kind of like some are some of these kind of key examples of bad practices in Africa. You know, kind of the galamse, the the, the overfishing, you know, um, the environmental destruction. Like in in a lot of cases, that the you know the, you know China Ghana relations can be kind of chalked up as 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 examples of, of, of just bad practice. You know, and and of, of like reasons for 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 African countries to not work with China. Um, Do you see that changing? Like, how how do you see that, that relationship and that interaction shifting over the next while?
0: Yeah, if we continue to have agreements that are mutually beneficial to both parties, then that relationship will be strengthened. And to do that, we need to have, we need to negotiate fair and, you know, fair agreements. And also we need to have constant communication and be accountable and transparent in all our dealings. Until we do that, one side will only benefit at the expense of the other and that is the only way so if we negotiate or if we have agreements that are mutually beneficial then you know it will bring win-win outcomes and one, once we have win-win outcomes then the relationship will strengthen because china you know has been on the continent of africa for a very long time and you know it is about time we have agreements that are mutually beneficial to um, all parties. And that's the way I see it. Being transparent, being accountable and you know, communicating constantly so that citizens of China and that of Ghana will understand what is going on and so that uh, negotiations are not done uh, in secrecy with confidentiality clauses.
2: Well, that is an excellent place to end our discussion on a somewhat hopeful note about what needs to be done for the future. Dr. Francis Xavier Duoku is one of Ghana's foremost scholars in the fields of environmental and energy policy, also a research fellow at the Afro-Sino Center of International Relations in Accra, and an adjunct professor at Antioch University in lovely Keene, New Hampshire, where he joins us today today. Francis, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your insights on this. Absolutely fascinating. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Cobus, there you have it. Not a lot of room for optimism. I mean, I think that was probably the most sobering assessment that we've seen on the future of this, of at least this corner of the relationship in a long time, and especially on these environmental issues, that unless there's better governance on the ground in Ghana, this is not going to improve. This is a very similar message that we've heard from the folks we've talked to in the fishery sector as well but it is depressing to hear because it does not look like those leaders are on the horizon any you know right now and and coming so if that's the the case the galamse will continue the fishing will continue the illegal mining in, in both the in in the informal sector but also the some of the forestry issues and so many of the issues that have involved the Chinese that relate to the lack of governance are going to persist.
1: This raises so many different issues for me. Um, one being the issue that that I think you know we're seeing a very strongly pushed from the United States at the moment is is this strong division between between um, autocracies and democracies. Obviously, Ghana is you know kind of is, is a is a famous democracy. It's you know it's it's very uh, it has very. Um, very vibrant kind of political culture, but it raises these questions about about where you square the issue of democracy with the issue of governance. You know, the, the because I think this is a, something that you see a lot in Africa. There's this vibrant political cultures and democratic cultures all over the all over the continent. At the same time, there's this kind of entrenched. Kind of hopelessness based on corruption and mismanagement also in many of the same countries and this is true in South Africa like you know South Africa has both of those things Um, and it, it just makes me wonder a how you get over that but b it seems to me that this this kind of like focus on democracy in exclusion of of hard hard questions about governance seems to be missing the point a little bit. What what do you think?
2: I think it misses it a lot. I think this is again we got to get back down just to the thing that I keep talking about is to practical solutions and what can be done to bolster governance on the ground. All this highfalutin rhetoric about democracy and freedom and things like that. Sure, great, fine, whatever. But until you're actually on the ground, really enhancing governance, and and if this is the and this just infuriates me because again, when we talk about creating jobs in sectors like Cocoa, and, and again, this speaks to the governance issue in the sense that if you're actually creating new industries that are aligned with government priorities, aligned with community demands, you'll have success. And the fact that the Cocoa business has not been able to attract the investment, despite the fact that the United States, the European Union, the Japanese, everybody pumps in hundreds of billions of dollars of aid money, but they're not pumping in the seed money. Now, this is the kind of thing that the DFC, the the Development Finance Corporation, does an excellent job in, by the way. They do an amazing job at providing capital in industries that are having difficulty finding money from the private capital markets. So I think the DFC is a huge opportunity here to be able to make a big impact by helping Ghana create its own chocolate industry and processing some of that. So I think that's very interesting. But I also want to make one other very important point. While well, we have talked about the role of the Chinese in Ghana. It is really, really critical to remember that the Chinese are by no means the only or if not the largest foreign actors in these spaces there are there are foreigners from nigeria from turkey from lebanon from all over the place that are taking advantage of this lack of governance so it's very important not to overstate the chinese role here yes chinese are, are are active in the mining sector in the fishing in the forestry there's no doubt there's ample evidence of this there's the question of the transparency in the loans and the contracts we've heard that over and over again and also this question of the use of chinese labor that is very interesting i would love to see some data I'm always skeptical a little bit of the anecdotal, but at the same time, we have to respect that. He sees it with his own eyes that there's Chinese workers building the roads. That's something that shouldn't happen either. And you would think that Chinese companies would be sensitive to that in places like Ghana where unemployment is an issue and where you do have a talent pool that's easily accessible, English speaking too. So you can't even chalk it up to language. So, there are so many things for us to kind of digest here, but I did want to kind of put some of those things on the table
1: yeah, I think it's really important um, you know like this this issue of this of this kind of total breakdown of trust between between populations and and officialdom is is such a fatal one in Africa and it 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 it, it, it it explains so much of the the problems you know on the continent and it's so difficult to solve um and it's so easy for external actors to kind of play into that gap um and you know yeah i'm not really so sure what i'm where i'm heading it's you know it's just it's just it's, it's such a striking problem and it's such a difficult one to solve and i kind of wonder you know what one does about that you know because it like the like so many so many kind of aspects of culture that leads to development like for example the this kind of like concept of kind of national culture and national heritage that leads to that 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 fuels development in many east asian countries falls down that gap you know kind of it becomes it becomes impossible to kind of to, to galvanize kind of national resources and national energies from a from a population if that kind of lack of trust is, is so pervasive and yeah i don't know, really know what to do about that you know it's 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 a, it's a, such a difficult problem
2: well if you're looking for a great example of how a company started up here in vietnam in the cocoa business Look up the case study of Marou, M-A-R-O-U chocolate. It is a fascinating story, and it has sparked. No, they were French who started it up here about 10 years ago, two French guys. But what's interesting is once they found success, all of these copycats came out. And all of these other farmers turned some of their crops over to cocoa, started using part of their cocoa export to be able to make their own chocolates, and they learned from it. And it created this whole industry that's here now. Now we can go to the supermarket down the street, and there are fifteen twenty chocolates from here in Vietnam. And so I guess that first spark is so important in Ghana. And that's where either private investors, the DFC, somebody can get involved, even a Chinese investor. There's a huge demand for chocolate in China. This would be a fantastic project to work on. And and again, Ghana is just so well suited to do it. But it does... It's depressing as all hell, because every time we speak to a Ghanaian stakeholder over the years, this is the outcome that we get. This is the same message almost over and over again that we've had. We rarely, rarely have a positive outlook for the future. I mean, it's really, it's quite tragic. Yeah, it's it really is. It's, it's, it's so, heartbreaking. Okay, let's leave the conversation there. Again, just want to give everybody a heads up. If you're following us in uh, online and on our social media, you're going to see a change coming in the next few weeks. We are going to be transitioning from the China-Africa project to the China-Global South project. COBUS is working on a few essays that's going to kind of lay out the rationale for this, how we really want to put Africa at the center of what China is doing in the developing world. So we're not going to take our attention away from Africa, but we're also going to start focusing on other parts of the world, including Southeast Asia, where I'm at, also Latin America, the Middle East, the Indian Ocean Basin, Uh, This podcast is going to change as well in a couple of weeks, where we're going to have our Friday edition be continued to focus on Africa, and then our early in the week edition, sometimes it's Tuesday, sometimes it's Wednesday, uh, will be focused on a different part of the world. That's the Global South, the China Global South podcast. So we're going to continue to put the Global South podcast into the Africa feed, but we'll also create a separate feed if you just want to receive the Global South podcast as well. So we got a couple changes coming up. New logo, new look a new focus, and uh, that'll come out hopefully in the next two or three weeks, but we just wanted to give you guys a quick heads up that there will be a few changes. And of course, we'd always love to hear what you're thinking, what your feedback, and if you'd like to join our community, we have an amazing Patreon community full of these great people around the world who are having these wonderful discussions with us. We love having those chats. Also, we're sharing updates, we're, and they get the, every Friday, our weekly digest, which is very, very cool, so we're very excited about that. You can find out more at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Let's leave it there. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
1: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.